Hi, my name is Paddy Buller, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. Today, I had the rare opportunity to speak with none other than author of, amongst others, Less Than Zero, Lunar Park, and of course, yes, American Psycho, Brett Easton Ellis. And we focus on the incredible array of influences which fed into and shaped his vast and shall we say controversial body of work? Yes, yes, we shall. Including film directors such as Terence Malick, literary influences such as Dostoevsky, Hamlet, and Joan Didion. Yes, Joan Didion, you heard that correctly. That is coming up, but uh, yeah, let's uh, round up some reading material for you guys. The Shape of Runes by Juan Gabriel Vasquez. I'm reading this at the minute, absolute belter of a read, set in Bogota, Colombia. And it revolves around the assassination of political figure York Alessio Gatan. One of those ones I kind of wished I had kept for the holiday. Um, very absorbing uh, page turner, really indulging my senses. Um, yeah, fantastic. Really, really recommend that one. Um, on the South American tip, staying on that. What You Have Heard Is True by Carlin Forsch fascinating and heartbreaking story of Forge, who in her 20s travels to El Salvador in the lead-up to the Civil War back in 78. Um, I interviewed Caroline for an upcoming Liberia podcast. She's a remarkable person. And we discussed her relationship with the various incredible people involved in the resistance and her meetings with some of the key leaders of the military junta. So you can imagine, pretty intense. But also her friendship with Susan Sontag. So, so keep an eye out for that. But that also coincides with the reissue of Joan Didion's classic, El Salvador, uh, which also covers the, the Civil War and US involvement. Again, staying on the South American tip, Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo is a lesser-known classic of magical realism. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, the kind of titan of magical realism, described this as a, as, as a little masterpiece. So, I mean, don't take it from me, take it from, from the man himself. A special mention to Bernadine Evaristo, Girl, Woman, Other. This is, I mean, I love Evaristo's style, which is so free. And in the sense that it, it, it seems to liberate her characters from conventional literary form, they really lift off the page, um, their vibrancy, their, I suppose, excitement, but also, you know, their sadness as well. And, it, and you know, it's just so refreshing to get this sort of writing, which, uh, as I say, is so experimentally free. So yeah, that's that's the reading for the moment, but let's go and talk to Brett Easton Ellis. Well, let's start with that. Uh, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, um, your new book is uh, your first foray into nonfiction. Tell us about it. Um, well, uh, for many years, my agent wanted me to put together a collection of essays. Mm. <clears throat> Uh, and I've been writing them since 1985. Oh, really? 1985, when I was first published. I published essays in Rolling Stone, and Vanity Fair, Vogue, uh, various men's magazines, Details, all these old magazines from the Amazing. Empire. But, you know, none of them are good. They're <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I'm not going to put them together in a collection. And I Fair told, her, I told yeah. her so. I said, I can't put these in a collection. And she said, well, you have a podcast. <clears throat> The Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Yeah. 
And she said, you open these podcasts with these kind of rants, mm. these monologues. Yeah. Those must be written out. Yeah. And I said, yeah, they're written out, but they're not really written out to be read. Okay. They're written out yeah. to be spoken in a way. Yeah. She said, well, take a look at them and see what, 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 uh, what sparks. Mm. And so with a friend of mine who thought that was a really good idea and maybe do a book of those, mm. we started going through them and noticed that there were certain themes that kept emerging yes. in all of these podcast openings that I would, that I would do. And it was like the cult of likability and ideology versus aesthetics and mm. are we all mm. actors mm. now? And also um, a lot of uh, movie reviews and stuff that touched upon all these topics. Sure. And so that's really how White came together. And it came together pretty fast once uh, we realized what was going to work for this book, which is very breezy, conversational, hopefully easy to read. Mm-hmm. This isn't a deep no, dive great. into yeah. anything. This yeah. isn't an in- insane polemic. It's, um, it's, it's, it's supposed to be like an op-ed piece uh, done over 270 pages and in eight sections. Brilliant. And then at the start of it, you're going into your early influences. Can we talk about that? Like in, in relation, like to somebody like Terence Malick, um, horror films. Can we can we discuss that like a little bit? Well, I'm a child of the 1970s. Yeah. Um, and there was a kind of uh, I don't know nihilism that was pervasive in the era. That was kind of thrilling. It mm. was really exciting. The mm. darkness of that era. And also the spectacle of movies during that movie mad era. I don't think people remember, um, oh, certainly if you're not a, at that age, how could you remember? But, um, but my friends and I were, were 14, 15, 16, mm-hmm. coming of age in an era where movies were the art form. They were the art form to aspire to. They were the spectacular things that were being made. And it was so exciting to go yeah. to the films because films were made for a mass audience and were serious yeah. and were beautifully made and with great directors, auteurs. Yeah. And so I grew up in that. And that's why movies mean so much to me ultimately, even mm. though they don't mean so much to the population at large now. So those were certainly an influence. And then, of course, since I was a writer, um, uh, books, uh, certain writers influenced me as well. But as someone once said, you know, as a writer, you only need about one or two. Yeah, okay. You don't need more than that to okay. influence you. Mine were, uh, you know, it's a very boring answer, but reading Hemingway for the first time yeah, was sure. an influence. Stephen King yes. was an influence. Yes. And a California writer, which I don't think she's that well known at all here, called Joan Didion. And she oh, wrote, oh, gosh, we love John. I love John Dewey, yeah. So Let's Dewey, talk about that a yeah. little bit later, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so those, those were my influences, and then a lot of the uh, punk music and the new wave music from that era were influential as well. Mm. So um, uh, that's a lot, you know, movies and writers and, and they, music. They, I, I guess... I guess the thing about the movies then, like Terence, as you say, the auteur. Terence Malick. Terence Malick, yeah. And that, that's quite, they, they are kind of literary as well, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Sometimes too literary. Yeah. Because Days of Heaven, which was the spectacular oh, movie that Terence yeah. Malick made in 19, came, came out in 1978, was a giant influence on me. And yet, I, and yet he shot it without that um, voiceover. Okay. Yeah. And he realized at a certain point, this is all just a string of beautiful imagery, but yeah. I'm going to need a voiceover to tie it all in. And um, and then I think I think uh, you know in a way he got so um, 
uh, overpossessed by the visual possibilities yes. of that movie that he yeah. kind of lost the narrative, and that's why he had to have that narrative. Um, and I think lately he's gotten off the rails, and I, the latest uh, Mallet movies don't interest me as much. But during that decade, that yeah, the Badlands and Days of Heaven yeah. were huge influences. And it's 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 the, it's the craziness of Badlands, isn't it? It's the um, giving voice to that kind of renegade. I mean, there's a, yeah, it's quite violent. It is, but it's also made with a precision, and it also uh, admires aesthetics and uh, style, yeah. and it's made with a precision, yeah. and its message is crazily dark. Like yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the world. Yeah, yeah. This is human nature. Yeah. This is not an aspirational drama. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, There's no good ending coming down the tracks. Well, <laughs> for a lot of 70s cinema, there was no good ending coming down the tracks for most of it. Yeah. Um, and that's what made it so darkly alive and thrilling. Uh, it was a mirror to that world of the yeah. 1970s uh, okay. in America. Going back to influences again, now you, you talk about Hemingway there, but Dostoevsky, surely he must be something, you know, I mean, you quote... Notes from the underground at the start of American Psycho. Is he is he key to you? Like I, I find your project overall, it's a, it's a very modern project, and it's all, almost like, oh well, this is the end of empire, and this is the sublime grip capitalism has had on our society. The, the Patrick Bateman thing. Yeah. Tell it. Is Dostoevsky key? Well, I'd have to say certainly um, notes from the underground, which I had read. My last year of high school. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it affected me deeply. Okay. And I'd also have to say, uh, to a lesser degree, shockingly enough, is crime and punishment. Yeah. Um, I have been uh, having problems with the big Dostoevsky novels. <laughs> I'm I having problems with I the know. Brothers Karamazov. I'm having problems with... Um, but the idiot, yeah, like, the idiot, the idiot. Is, 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 is incredible for that... Psychology. I mean, you know, you know, yeah. you have that in. You have a certain, in, in, of course, yeah, in in, in American Psycho. Um, but American Psycho uh, wasn't necessarily, and it's really strange to say this. It really wasn't influenced by any other writers. I haven't no. really come across anything like American Psycho. Sure. Totally. No, and so Dostoevsky really wasn't a point person. Um, the novel began to. Um, become this thing for me that I never planned out. I, it was supposed to be a much more earnest, straightforward novel, and yet I got caught up in the craziness of that period and mm. that moment, and it started to affect me personally. And soon the novel became this personal book about me being unhappy about being in a society that I didn't believe in. Okay. I think that's a universal yeah. feeling. And I realized the things I had to give up and the things I had to accept in order to be a member of this society. Hard choices, I felt, at 24, 25. And yet, where else was there to go? That was the other thing. This is like, so I have to do this in American society to be considered a man or a successful man. And I really resent it. I really don't want to be that. And yet, society at that time was very insistent about it. And I was young enough to buy into it. I remember, I was young enough to buy into it. It, it's 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 about two things, isn't it? Really, in essence, it's about kind of contract. I, you, you know, the social contract, shall we say, and it's about virtue, and and they're not really compatible in this society, are they? They aren't. You have to find your own path to make it powerful. 
And I didn't know how to do that then. And so I wrote a book to explore my feelings and to clarify things for myself. And they did. And after I finished American Psycho, I said, oh, I'm my own man. I'm an individual. I get it now. I had to go through this process for three years to fully understand that I am capable of this, this, and this. But American Psycho is a really... um, um, its message is downbeat. Its message is saying that we are all trapped, not only in society, but we're also trapped in our heads, as Patrick Bateman is, what's mm-hmm. real, what's not. Um, but I felt better after I wrote that book. That book might be somewhat... Well, you say that in, 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 in White. You say that it was the only thing that gave you clarity during that period, actually knuckling down and getting on it was. The period was very confusing for me. But I imagine anybody's early 20s are confusing yeah. for them. And so for me, how to get out of that haze, how to get out of that kind of anxiety and stress is working on American Psycho, of all things. And that was the thing that got me out of... And I loved working on it. Yeah. I absolutely loved working yeah. on it. It was not... It was not. People read the book and go, oh my God, how could you live with this book for three years. No, 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 no. It was very easy, and uh, as every book should be. So um, uh, don't worry about me during that period. I was, I was fine. I was just a little lost in my when, other life. When you say enjoying it, I mean, it's, it's apparent to me that you're, you're, you're having, you are having a great time with this character. It's funny. It is funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. And right. the, 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 uh, his tone of voice, I mean, you call it free indirect discourse, call it whatever you want, but it is... It's like he is um, reading from a, some sort of a manual yeah. most of the time. Yeah, that's, it, that's his guide for living. I mean, exactly. his guide for living is like lost magazines and uh, reading the paper to see who went to dinner where. Yes. Um, uh, looking at fashion magazines. I should buy this suit yeah. because it's popular right now. And I have to say, I was a little bit like that. I was a little bit like that. Patrick Bateman says at one point, I want to fit in. in. Yeah. I wanted to fit in too. Yeah, yeah. And yet I wasn't really willing to do the things that one needed to do to fit in. And it was all about looking super slick, making mm-hmm. a million dollars. All of these things that the yuppie era uh, uh, really pushed. Yeah. And American Psycho is a mirror of the values. And, that, that and, and, and his style or his, his discourse... It's one of the things that myself and a friend of mine we were discussing it because um, he's he's a massive fan as well. That style, that tone of voice, does not change no matter how gro- grotesque and the or violent uh, you know the, the yeah the the murders are. That's that's the key thing. Was that always present? Like okay, I, I, this is this is so key. I need to, I need to have this the whole way through. It was something that I did in my first novel, Less Than Zero. Mm. And I loved how this flat tone worked. It's and I was, brilliant. And I was shocked by the effects it achieves in scenes of high drama, mm. scenes of very disturbing imagery, that this flatness um, accentuates it and makes it more powerful. Yeah. Instead of getting, sometimes Stephen King, when he's writing some of his dramatic scenes, resorts to exclamation points and yeah. all. all yeah. The, I don't like Stephen King. I'm not putting. And, and certain writers make things much more dramatic. But uh, something that I learned when I was a younger writer and I was doing short stories and they had violent things in it or sexual things in it, mm. everything always got heightened by a kind of minimal, flat approach. 
And um, it kind of changed a little bit in my second novel, The Rules of Attraction, which is narrated by a series of college kids who are all in love with each other and mm. doing drugs and running around this campus one yeah. time. And they're more fraught with emotion. They're more passionate. Yeah. And the, their, um, um, their monologues tend to be more excitable. Going to Patrick Bateman, it was almost starting this book from the invisible man's point of view. Mm. The novel starts, and Patrick Bateman doesn't... You don't notice... You wonder who's narrating this. I don't think you hear I said until maybe <laughs> the second or third page, because I think Paul... Whoever the guy is in the taxi cab with keeps talking and talking yeah. and talking. Yeah. Price, yeah. Price. <laughs> and so... Um, so he seemed to me to be this faceless ghost who was kind of um, hidden because he was conforming. Mm. He had conformed, and therefore he wasn't an individual anymore. Mm. He was hidden. And that's why everyone mistakes everybody for everyone else, because everyone conformed yes. to the group think of yeah. the moment. And there was, there was no individuality. And um, so... Uh, and there's no agency. No, no agency. He, he has no... He can't achieve anything. Well, I felt that way at that time in terms of how the system had been set up. Mm. Um, you really are just spinning in place. There, there's this dream that's offered to you, but the reality is that the dream, you never catch up to the dream. Uh, it's just a sales tool. I saw it happen to my father who grew up in the prosperous 50s, post-World War II, boomer generation. Mm. He even sold this dream to... You know, and he didn't achieve it. He thought he was going to achieve it, and it left him extremely dissatisfied, almost uh, enraged. And I feel that was a theme, or something that I wanted to touch upon in American Psycho when I wrote about it. But a lot of a lot of it stemmed from my father's unhappiness about all the things he acquired and none of it making him happy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, for you, creativity then is is or, or finding a path to to create some sort of creativity was. I mean, it was just essential for, for sanity in, in this world. I, I, I mean, I, I understand what you're talking about. Um, let's go back to Joan Didion. She's very important to your... One of the most important. One of the most important. One of the most important. When I came across her works when well, I was a teenager... Why? Um, well, she was writing about Los Angeles in a way that... And, and Southern California and California in general in a way that I'd never come across. It's very modern. Um, and she was interested in this. She had a beautiful, has a beautiful prose style. Uh, um, you might say kind of high end, but it's just magnificent, it's, right? It's gorgeous. And but she was interested in a lot of things that you would not expect a writer who was um, of her temperament to be interested in. And she was interested in pop culture. She was interested in Hollywood. She was interested in hippie culture. She was interested in. Uh, the Doors, she was interested in the Manson murders. Mm. And, and she, Empire as well. Yeah, and Empire as well. Well, she's a major part of Empire, which is uh, what Gore Vidal defined America to be post-World War II. It had become the most powerful empire in the world. Yes. And what was it like to live at the height of the empire in America during that time? And Joan Didion was one of its foremost chroniclers. And also the style. It was a style. It was, and it was also the way she approached um, her fiction as well as her nonfiction. And definitely her novel, her Hollywood novel, Played As It Lays, was a huge influence on Less Than Zero. Okay, fantastic. You touched on Shakespeare. I, I just, there's a couple more questions. Uh, again, I suppose it's about uh, influence and 
some of my own readings. Lunar Park. I mean, that's Hamlet, isn't it? That is. And I wish. Why? I, why, why? Why do critics not? Why do critics not like anything or notice anything <laughs> that I write? I have always been I mean, a fairly poorly reviewed literary figure. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess you know. I mean, it's El- Elsinore Drive for a I, start. I mean, you're, it's not like um, you're hiding the, 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 the intention. Maybe I didn't push it far enough. No, I think it's. I, I think it's a great. I think it's a great work. I think you. I think you, it's a dream work. Yeah, yeah, it's a dream work. Absolutely. And it takes place in a kind of the the dream of the author who is narrating that book. I mean. I believe that everything in the book is real, but it's also a very dreamlike book. It's a dreamlike situation he finds himself in at yeah. that point in his life. And I can relate to that. Yeah. I've had dreamlike situations, parts of my life as well. And that is what I wanted to capture in Lunar Park. And I was really thinking about fathers and sons a lot because... Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. That whole, yeah, that whole Hamlet thing of... So much yeah. of why the impetus to write Lunar Park was ultimately to forgive my dad. Mm. Sorry, guys. Mm. Might sound sappy, but I had a very difficult relationship with my father. I wasn't speaking to him when he, did, when he, when he died. Mm. Uh, he's haunted me. I've been very angry about him, and yet... That writing that book and getting to the end of that book was an exorcism. But it's also about your interpretation of Hamlet, though, as well, isn't it? As this kind of fast, or what's the word? Not facile. Um, a splintered personality. The idea of this mod, you know, what Shakespeare does is he creates this modern human being. Who first has, one, maybe. Maybe the first yeah. one, yeah, yeah. Who is discovering himself through these um, shocking experiences. Yeah, isn't that what it is? Like well, yes, but that's also and, life. And isn't that what life is? That yeah, is it's what this, life is. Life is a, a kind of a room of mirrors where you, you're you're constantly undergoing these different experiences and trying to figure out who you are, and it's always changing. It's kind of protein, protein. Yeah. Well, how about that? Whew. Really wasn't expecting to get so much insight into the making of such psychized works, such as American Psycho and Lunar Park. And, and totally refreshing for an author to open up like that about their work and in such an honest way. Marvellous, marvellous stuff. Stay tuned. As ever, we've got some killer stuff on the way and we will welcome the brilliant Kevin Barry to Liberia Bookshop for uh, a chat and hopefully a chat on the podcast as well. In the meantime, check out the cultural programme at secondhome.io for full listings. See you next time.